You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster this Friday, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now we're taking another special look today at Brexit as the government faces a backbench revolt among its own MPs over plans to breach the divorce treaty with the EU. Some backbench Tories are threatening to vote against this legislation, arguing that it breaches international law. Earlier we were speaking to Sir Roger Gale, Conservative MP for North Thanet, and he told us it's a matter of preserving the UK's honour. I will not support the bill. I will vote against the bill. Uh, if it's presented in its present form. That is absolutely straightforward. I can't speak for my colleagues, but I do believe that those of us who have been in the House for a long time have a duty to stand up and be counted. I regard this very seriously indeed because the pound is not doing too well at the moment. That is due to uncertainty. How more uncertain will it be if we go into trade negotiations with the rest of the world post-Brexit and the countries with whom we're dealing know that it is quite possible that the agreements that they may sign will not be worth the paper that they're written on because they cannot trust the government of the United Kingdom. So Roger Gale there, the Conservative MP, saying he won't back the bill. The question is, how many of his colleagues will follow suit? Well, we find out next week. This is despite a three-week deadline that Brussels has given the Prime Minister to scrap this bill. The government pressing ahead with the internal market bill. It's going to be formally debated on Monday in the House of Commons. And then yesterday we had those emergency talks, didn't we, between the European Commission Vice President Marish Shevchevich and the Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove. I made it perfectly clear to Vice President Shevkovich um, that we would not be withdrawing this legislation. Um, and he understood that. Of course, he regretted it. And as a result, the EU is now threatening legal action. Now, if the withdrawal agreement is changed, that could come into play. Finance Commissioner of the EU, Paolo Gentiloni, has been telling Bloomberg trust has been eroded. We are not working for a hard Brexit, but we need to have a uh, trustful 
partner to have a deal. What we are stressing now is that it's up to the British government to uh, work to re-establish this trust. Now, a key stakeholder in all of this is, of course, Ireland. Political leaders here and in Europe say in the UK, um, the move from the UK threatens a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, thereby endangering the peace process. And that's something that we saw drawing US politicians earlier in the week as well. So really a matter of concern. For more, we're joined by Barry Andrews. He's an Irish MEP for the Renew Europe Group and a former Fianna Fáil minister. Uh, Barry, given the amount of frustration we've seen here from the UK side. Does it make sense for UK, for EU negotiators rather, to carry on with these talks? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the implementation of the, of the withdrawal agreement uh, has been uh, discussed by the Joint Committee for the last, uh, since, since March, uh, I think it had its first meeting. Um, in parallel, the, the uh, future relations uh, discussions with Barnier and frost are ongoing, and I think they should continue uh, for the time being. But there will come a point, in my opinion, where it, we, we, certainly in Ireland, we better serve to simply say, well, look, this isn't going anywhere. We really need to plan for the contingency of a no-deal Brexit. And as you said, uh, the impact in Ireland is enormous. Um, I heard that previous politician mentioned the weakness of sterling, which is having a, a massive impact on Irish exports into the UK market. Uh, so we need to start planning for what, what's coming forward. I think the three-week uh, opportunity for the UK government to consider what uh, its approach is appropriate and proportionate. And I really hope that uh, wiser counsel will prevail because it seems to me, looking at Westminster, that it's backfiring there. It's certainly unified. Uh, EU interlocutors, all of the 26, the 27 member states, and as you also alluded to, uh, your international partners for future trade relations are having a very serious look at uh, whether the UK can be trusted with Nancy Pelosi saying that there's no way there'll be a US-UK trade deal unless the Good Friday Agreement is protected. Yeah, well, Barry, you talk about wiser councils there. Well, what might it not be thought that perhaps on both sides now there needs to be a long, hard look at what's going on? Major concessions, perhaps things that previously would have been unthinkable on both sides as a way of avoiding what most uh, people, I guess, including yourself, think would be the worst outcome, which would be no deal. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, look, there, there, we, we are we're in discussions because we all, we all, both sides, UK and the EU, recognize that compromises are going to have to be made. But, you know, what is completely unacceptable is when you have an existing international agreement with the United Kingdom that unilaterally is being torn up by the United Kingdom by its own admission. Uh, when Mr. Lewis told the House of Commons uh, that, he, that it was a breach of international law, how can we go on to another international agreement with the United Kingdom when you are in the middle of uh, domestic legislation to rip up the previous one? So, yes, we definitely want compromise, and that's why we're on the eighth round of discussions about how we're going to uh, determine our relations for the future. And, you know, for, for me and for lots of Irish people, you know, we want to see the UK not as a trading competitor, but as a trading partner. We have to forge a future where, uh, you know, the uh, massive, towering common interests that we share are, are achieved in, in, in some kind of future agreement. That's what business across the UK wants. That's what business throughout Ireland wants, what the citizens yeah. of the EU want to see.
So, so you say that both sides need to give away some ground, and clearly that's going to be necessary to reach some sort of conclusion. What do you think the EU might be prepared to offer there? Well, there, there's not going to be anything on this issue, uh, frankly, uh, Sebastian. It's not going to be on the question of, well, are we going to say, OK, fair enough. Well, yeah, we will have a bit of a hard border on the island of Ireland, and we will, you know, undermine the Good Friday Agreement. That's not, that's done. The withdrawal agreement is already agreed. The Joint Committee has a role in making sure that it is implemented fully, and there's a deadline on that. What we are obviously happy to negotiate on are the major issues that are outstanding for the future relations around fisheries, around identifying a dispute resolution mechanism to replace the issue that the UK have raised about the European Court of Justice, and to look at the state aid uh, regime that the UK eventually are going to say that they want to have. We still don't know what that is. So we're still at the table and 100% want to compromise, particularly in Ireland, where the stakes are incredibly high well, in the context of the, of the pandemic and the impact that's having on international trade. Well, I want to examine that stake, uh, actually, Barry, because it's very interesting. I mean, how much does Dublin have uh, to worry about in all this? I mean, if we look into the abyss, if as it seems possible, there's a no-deal outcome. This law that's going through the House of Commons at the moment goes in into place. There is de facto a hard border in Ireland. Just take us through the the, the issues that would set up for Dublin. Well, you know, in, in the UK, you won't pick up, well, I say the UK, uh, in, in Great Britain, you don't pick up some of the security issues that go on uh, day in, day out in the north. Uh, just this week, earlier this week, there was a case in the courts where uh, improvised explosive devices put under the car of a member of the PSNI. And that kind of threat to, this, to, to the security services uh, is consistent. It's very amateurish. doesn't enjoy popular support. But if you put a, a border on the island of Ireland, I'm afraid those tensions will simply increase. That's the first and most important issue. The second, then, of course, is the impact on the economy in the context of COVID. So, for example, uh, 50% of Irish beef goes into the UK market. So you have the problem already of COVID where we're possible to sell into restaurants and high-end hotels. You now have that compounded by uh, the weakness of sterling. And you're asking to put on top of that uh, the tariffs that the UK has to apply under most favoured nation rules under the World Trade Organization. So... It just—it's unthinkable, frankly. And I, and I, what worries me maybe is, is the UK are figured. You know, it's such a devastating possible impact on Ireland that we'll risk everything and see will the EU abandon Ireland uh, in order to make sure that there's a future relation. And now there has been absolutely no evidence of that. And not only that, but that our friends in the US Congress have come out in support of Ireland and. Uh, as you've just also mentioned, Westminster is uh, beginning to show its teeth again for the first time since uh, since the, the Johnson government took over. And at the at the same time, with, when all this is going on, Barry, is there a sense, do you think, that that that, that there is planning for this? Uh, as we said, uh, as you said, quite uh, almost unthinkable outcome that's coming through here. I mean, is, is Dublin actually consciously working to see how it can work with what may be coming? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Brexit planning um, has been ongoing for four years and the first round of it was in anticipation that the withdrawal agreement wouldn't be achieved. Uh, so there was a fear of a crash-out Brexit at the end of 29, uh, 2018. Um, 
And there was a huge amount. I was part of a Brexit stakeholder forum that was organised by the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs and all of the, you know, civil parties. the uh, civil society organisations were involved, all the representative industry and uh, people, all the unions. So we're now into the round two, where there's a danger of this on the 31st of December, and much more real, I, I feel, now than it has ever been. Uh, but, the, you know, I, I read a report last week which indicated that only one in ten Irish businesses uh, feel that they're ready for a hard Brexit, uh, completely ready for a hard Brexit, because there's all this, this, this inventory issues, there's storage space, there's warehousing there's concerns about the UK land bridge, as we say, where Irish yeah. products that are exported, yeah, that, that we're worried about over Calais and how that's all going to play out an impact um, on Irish exports and imports, indeed. Um, and, and we're yeah. worried about, well, if there, is going to, if there isn't going to be um, the withdrawal agreement, well, how is the, U- the EU single market going to be protected? Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's focus on the domestic side of the Brexit story then. The Prime Minister facing a backbench revolt over his plans to breach the divorce treaty with the EU. That showdown happens on Monday when the internal market bill hits the Commons. Former Minister Bob Neill has tabled an amendment that would give Parliament a veto on overriding the withdrawal agreement, and that's drawing some interest. Well, let's discuss this with Anna Menon, Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London and Director of the UK in Changing Europe. Anna, I suppose the question at the moment is, does Boris Johnson have the numbers, despite his 80-strong majority, to pass this bill in Parliament? Well, I think the first thing to say is it's a little bit unpredictable because actually Parliament hasn't been much in evidence since the election, thanks to the pandemic. And so... You're not as certain as we usually would be about how rebellious this set of Tory backbenchers are. At the moment, it looks like the numbers who might rebel are in the 20s. So in that sense, the government would be safe. One big question that hangs over this is whether even that scale of rebellion will embolden the Lords to make life more difficult for the government in that House when they sit. Yeah, because, I mean, the Lords are an interesting factor in all this. So we may remember back in the early days of all this, uh, the Lords were, were actually having an effect as well. But I think very, very striking was where we had a Lord Howard, the former leader of the Conservative Party, of course, um, saying that this was simply something that could not be put up with. And generally, and I mean, the Lords tend to be rather on the side of law-keeping rather than law-breaking. Yeah, and indeed, there are a load of sort of high-profile former diplomats and legal figures in the House of Lords who I think will be using the occasion of the debates to make some very strident points. But 
politically what is interesting are the number not just of senior conservatives in the Lords, but of senior Brexit-supporting conservatives in the Lords, like Michael Howard, who have spoken out against this bill. And what about Gina Miller? So she's allegedly getting involved again. Are we heading for another one of those big Supreme Court showdowns that we enjoyed last year? Well, I mean, two things to say, I suppose, on Gina Miller. Firstly, she's getting involved because there was a point, paradoxically, yesterday where she and the court case that she won against the government were being held up by proponents of this law to show why it was constitutionally fine because of the principle of parliamentary sovereignty. So Gina Miller came out yesterday to say, actually, that is absolutely not the point I was making and distancing herself from that. The second thing is, yes, I'm pretty certain this will be challenged in the court because there is a part of this bill, Clause 45, that basically says whatever the courts may have said, ministers can do what we're empowering them to do under this bill. And there is a question mark as to the legality of that. Yes, I can imagine the lawyers sharpening their quills even as we speak in all this area. And But I mean, one of the interesting aspects, I suppose, is does Boris Johnson mean it? I mean, this is a government that has performed a number of U-turns, of course. Uh, we know that there is perhaps a, a sense of playing uh, the politicians, playing the media perhaps to their own advantage. That certainly seemed to be the case in the past. Do you think this is all just one big bluff? Probably not, because... Michael Gove, when quizzed on this yesterday, was unequivocal, unequivocal that the government cannot and will not pull this bill. I mean, he used language from which it would be quite hard to resolve. So I think the government is serious about this. The question is whether the calculation they're making is that the EU will continue to negotiate in the hope that if a deal can be found then the powers lodged within this bill will, in a sense, be redundant. But the problem is that the EU's own statement on this seems to imply that unless those particular clauses that Brussels finds finds offensive are got rid of, it will be very, very hard to sign a trade deal with the UK. What about the wider environment here? You've got GDP figures out today, which were all right, but showing a bit of a while to go to recoup what we had before the pandemic. Possible job losses coming in the, the, the months to follow, given furlough coming to an end, rising virus cases. This surely is pointing to a, a political, horrible cocktail for the government. Yeah, it's not an easy time for the government. I suppose they can take solace in the fact that every government is in the same boat. That is to say, worldwide, we are going to be facing massively rising unemployment as a result of the lockdown and what it's done to our economies. A real issue, I think, for the government here, however, at the moment is they're facing two combined and different backbench rebellions. There's a rebellion we've talked about that is coming over the internal market bill. And on the other side of the parliamentary party, there's growing dissatisfaction with the way the government is handling the lockdown and the pandemic. It's a different set of MPs. As far as I can make out, there's only one MP threatening to rebel on both. But things are getting fairly tricky for Boris Johnson in the House of Commons at the moment. And at the same time, I mean, they're trying to pull things out that say, well, actually, things are, are, are better. I mean, one, I guess, is is this incipient um, Japan trade deal, uh, talking that this is a, almost a done deal, that this will go through, this will be a massive benefit for the UK economy. How real and significant is that, do you think? It is real. And, uh, you know, Japanese are an important trading partner. I suppose the, the rub is they are nowhere near as an important a trading partner for us as the European Union. So if you place side by side the gains to be had from the Japan trade deal and the negative impact of what's happening with the European Union, the Japan trade deal pales into insignificance. That being said, we're in the world we're in. We're leaving the single market and the customs union. And so the the, the Japan deal will be a boost, however slight, 
to the British economy. And what about the US deal? We heard from Nancy Pelosi earlier in the week that it could be in peril if we have um, an, an end of peace in, in Northern Ireland and the, uh, the Northern Ireland peace treaty being um, imperiled. How big a blow would that be if that came to pass? It would be an enormous blow. Remember, we haven't actually negotiated a trade deal with the United States yet. And there's no evidence to suggest that the U.S. are going to treat us any differently to anyone else. They'll negotiate with their interests in mind. So it will be a tough negotiation. But the point Nancy Pelosi was making was even if we manage to get a great trade deal with the United States, it will not get through Congress if there's any sign that the British government is resiling on its commitments over Northern Ireland. And that, I think, is a serious issue for the government to consider. Anna, let's let's look at it in a slightly different way. Is there an, a way out, a path that, that you can see whereby we could end up with a deal with each side having to make some concessions but actually relatively happy with what they get so by, by the end of this year we actually come out of this with something that works for both sides? Is that still possible? Absolutely it's possible, yes. It's quite easy to see where concessions could be made by either side that will get us to a deal. The question is whether each side is willing to make those concessions. Uh, and that is what we won't really know until heads of state and government become personally involved in these negotiations, because they're the only ones with the political economy, the political authority, sorry, to make the kinds of concessions that will need to be made. But yes, it, it is still perfectly conceivable that we'll end up with a deal. The one thing I would say is, even if we get a deal, it'll be a relatively thin trade deal, so it will still have a significant impact on the British economy. But is that possible politically? I feel like the issue with Boris Johnson is that the way he's got where he has now is by over-promising, whether it's the fishing community or the Brexit purist backbenchers. He's told everybody he's going to give them what they want, and that is sort of the rub here. It just doesn't seem possible when it comes to negotiating with the EU. No, I mean, Boris Johnson is going to have to do some convincing of someone to sell this deal because there will be people who are disappointed. But if you think back to last year, the government talked up the chances of no deal and then produced this deal they signed with the European Union. And Boris Johnson was hailed as a hero, even though that deal not only signed up to something that his predecessor, Theresa May, had said no British prime minister could sign up to, i.e. an internal border within the United Kingdom, but also signed up to something that Boris Johnson himself only a year before that had said he would never accept. So Boris Johnson is nothing if not flexible. And I think the government is partly counting on the fact that if they strike a deal with the EU, politically, people will be so impressed that he's got any kind of deal that he might get away without the details being too closely interrogated. But what about the other side of that in Brussels? What's the willingness? What's the flexibility there? What's the uh, answer that they're actually going to get uh, a way forward? Is it, is it likely that there is that political will in Brussels? I think in Brussels, like in London, there is a strong preference for a deal over no deal. And that's what continues to make me slightly hopeful that we might find a way out of the current impasse in the negotiations. But I think equally for both sides, they both want to deal, but not at any price. And so we have to find a way to nudge the positions of the two sides, whether it's on fisheries or whether it's on government subsidies, closer together than they are at the moment. And so I'm not for a moment suggesting there's definitely going to be a deal. All I'm saying is, given the strong desire on both sides to get one, it is a possibility and it is conceivable that at the 11th hour the necessary concessions are made. And from the UK side, how did we get here? Because the... Uh, Tory party signed up to this deal at the end of last year and now they're saying they want to change it. Did they go into that knowing they wanted to change it or has something come up in the meantime that has made that necessary? 
Well, there were leaks in the newspapers at the time that the government was reassuring backbenchers they can vote for this because we can change it. So it was certainly something that was being thought about. Uh, I don't know enough about the mindset of the people in Number 10, to be honest, to know how seriously they were thinking about it at the time. But... Uh, Certainly, it, I mean, in what you hear from certain conservative backbenchers at the moment is they were being reassured, don't worry, even if you don't like it, we can change this down the line. Yeah, an interesting moment where that sort of concession... In, your, in the end, and it's, it's an almost impossible thing, do you think a deal will come out? In your heart of hearts, you had to put your money on, yes or no, to be brief. If I was forced to, my answer would be yes, but I think it's pretty much 50-50 at the moment. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.